This episode is a departure from our normal ballistics study that we've been doing the last couple months, but it's certainly one you don't want to miss. We cover a bunch of different topics from what it looks like to work in this industry on the media side, what that looks like internationally, and what it's like to hunt in wonderful places like the Himalayas, for example. You're going to enjoy this. I'm Joyce Hornady. You might say accuracy is my business. I make bullets. You are listening to the Hornady Podcast. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Hornady Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Swerzik, and I'm joined today beside me, Marketing Director Neil Davies. Neil, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, buddy. Thanks for having me again. Absolutely. So uh, the guest on our show today, uh, a gentleman that I met uh, just a couple of years ago, and my experience with him is just a couple of years old. However, his involvement with Hornady is you know, way longer than that. So if you would, please help me in introducing Simon Barr to the show. Yeah, so Simon and his company Tweed Media, you know, the, a lot of times that they are behind the scenes and a lot of things that are happening within the industry. Uh, a big component of what they've done for years is is bring American brands to Europe, but then now that's kind of transcended and works, you know, in every which way from bringing European people into the American market as well. So, but yeah, Simon has been part of our uh, extended family now for well over a decade and. You know, at the end of the day, just a great friend to us. So, Simon, thanks for coming. Oh, pleasure. I'm honored. There's been some serious people on here. I, I sort of don't really feel like I'm up to it, but uh, <laughs> yeah. we'll see how we go. Yeah. But this is, this is the norm. So, this is the week between Dallas Safari Club show and SHOT Show. So, Simon usually has a, has a little trip over here in between the shows, uh, kind of hangs out a little bit and gets to see everybody before we then go to the slog that is the, the SHOT Show for a week. Yeah. Well, and... And it's probably more so for you, Simon, but I, I know trade shows like the SHOT Show are a lot of work, more work than people mm. quite understand. But it's also great, and, and as long as you've been in the industry, it's almost like you, you can't walk 10 feet without, oh, hey, there's so-and-so, yeah. and we did this thing. And how's that for you to come back for SHOT Show every year? Oh, it's amazing. I think it'll be my 13th or 14th SHOT Show. Uh, and for a Brit, that's relatively unusual unless you're – you have a business that requires you to come out here. And when I first came out here, I didn't really have a business that required me to come out here, but I knew America seemed like a really exciting prospect mm -hmm. um, for the business that I had, Tweed Media, which is a marketing and PR agency, as, as Neil said. And we kind of specialize in communications. And I could see that the amount of American brands that needed better communications through Europe coming to SHOT Show would make more sense. So that journey of kind of 14 years worth of um, meeting people, understanding the industry better and mm -hmm. better, um, having the pleasure of going hunting with a lot of lot of people from different brands. Um, the only brand I've ever worked with from an ammunition point of view is Hornady, and that, that came about. Uh, we started working with the UK distributor, Edgar Brothers, yep. um, back in 2008, 2009. So birth of Creedmoor, if you can think that yeah. far back, wow. and, and, and Superformance, that kind of era. I remember all the, you know, the heavy marketing around that. So uh, it's quite some time ago, and, and you know, I've been lucky enough to hunt around the world, lots of stuff in Europe and, and, and farther than that. I'm sure we'll talk about that in a little mm -hmm. while. But I've seen the, the evolution of the products, the evolution of marketing, and, and I've been proud to be part of some of the, the kind of promotion and marketing of the Hornady products um, into the UK and into the wider kind of European battle space, if we want to call it yeah, that, for, yeah. which has been really exciting. And, um, you know, I'm, I, I think if you cut me, I bleed Hornady, actually, because, uh, you know, I've, I've sort of, 
I'd been up mountains, I think, with Steve and, and with Jason and uh, around the world, and, and they've both come and hunted, um, and as has Neil, on a number of occasions into the UK. So we've become lucky enough um, uh, good friends now. So it's sort of the business element's really important, and we're still very, very proud of our relationship with Hornady, but uh, actually, I don't know how proud I am of my friendship with them. They can be quite challenging friends at times. But, <laughs> oh, but, yeah. <laughs> well, they're big personalities. Yeah, yeah they're big. No, I love them to bits, and um, I'm actually... Um, I was at the Dallas Safari Club, as Neil said last week, and um, I got ushered over by Steve to come and sit down. I won't try and imitate him. It would be very uh, unfunny from a Brit to try and do that. <laughs> Although he imitates me. Hello, Simon, every time he sees me. <laughs> so, Hello, Simon, come and sit here. So I went and sat there, and he said, um, I'm going to Pakistan to shoot a Marco. Would you like to come with me um, and generate some content? So in March, I'm going to the Himalayas. I've been there twice before. Um, uh, and at different countries I've been to the Nepalese uh, or the area of uh, the Himalayas that Nepal is mm -hmm. in. Does that make sense? Kind of, yeah. I think. Yep. Uh, and, and India as well, foothills of the Himalayas. So this is on the very westerly edge uh, of the Himalayas or the greater Himalayan range, uh, and I'm going with Steve. I'm going to carry his bags and take my camera. And Sherpa. Yeah, Sherpa, Sherpa yeah. Simon. Yeah. So, wow, um, well, what an opportunity. Mega. Yeah. I mean, yeah. not many people go shoot a Markor and just to be involved in that. Completely. And, you know, I've, I've actually, uh, and Steve was the person that made me realize um, last year sitting down at Dallas, uh, there's more sitting down at the consumer hunting shows than at trade shows, I have to say. So there's sure. more time to sit down and, and uh, shoot the you-know-what when mm -hmm. you're sitting there and chatting. And um, uh, we had, I think it was a, uh, hunting catalogue for one of the outfitters and in the back it's got all the sheep and all the goat species I was like damn I've, I've got a Capra slam so we worked out that I'd shot 12 goats around the world so I'm no stranger to uh, the mountain environment right. and um, you know, it's a funny thing the idea of just accompanying someone and having the pleasure of being there and you know the trigger pull is really great and, and that experience is fantastic but Markor is something and it's such a conservation success story yeah. Just to be part of that and go and see and, and, you know, for me, the best hunt I've ever done was in Nepal culturally. It was so interesting and so uh, um, wildly different to my life in Scotland mm -hmm. um, uh, that I loved it so much. And I'm sure, no question, hunting in Pakistan with Steve will be, well, the element of Steve being there will be funny and interesting. And then obviously being in Pakistan in the Himalayas will be amazing. So yeah. a, for a former British colony, that. Uh, you know, yeah, quite. I think yeah. most of the time Simon likes to point that out, as yeah. we know. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes. It, it, on the Victorian map, most of it was red. Yeah, that yeah. was, that was um, including over here. But we'll leave that. So I think maybe something for everybody that's watching or listening would be for you to maybe give us a little background about you and sure. Tweed Media and how that all came to be and the evolution thereafter. Yeah. So um, uh, I'm I'm the beauty behind it. The brains is my wife Selena. And uh, might, might be both the beauty and the brains. <laughs> yeah, uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder yeah. on that one. Um, Selena and I, so Selena was working for a um, 140 year old shooting magazine called The Shooting Times in the UK. And you should explain shooting versus. Yeah. So, yeah. so um, uh, we call anything that is uh, like reared game. So we rear a lot of 40 million, we release 40 million pheasants and partridges in the UK every year. If you hunt them, you go pheasant hunting in the US. We go pheasant shooting. You, okay. It's something that's been reared, so you don't hunt it. You shoot it. Okay. So shooting is the big activity in the UK. Winged game is the, is the, is the uh, uh, way that people generally go and engage in a kind of your-term hunting context. Okay. Um, and hunting for us is what you do sitting on the back of a horse chasing a fox. 
If oh, you say well. you're going hunting, that people think you're going riding a horse and, and following some hounds and chasing foxes. So the term hunting or big game hunting um, uh, doesn't really exist. We call it stalking. So the, oh, okay. it's kind of all a bit, you know, yeah. arse about face. Um, but uh, because I've hunted internationally so much, I refer to it now as hunting. Um, and I guess if you say to someone big game hunting in the UK, they'd get it. Mm. But stalking comes from the um, activity of hunting Stalking? hunting yeah. red stags in Scotland. You stalk them. Okay. So that's the, 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 the actual activity is more a stalk than it is a hunt. A hunt for us would be horses, dogs chasing stuff. So Got it. That's the kind of way that, that that goes down. So Selena worked for the Shooting Times, 140-year-old magazine. She was the news editor. It's a weekly magazine, so it comes out every week. And the key part of the magazine is the news at the front of it, the front eight pages. And she was the news editor. So she had one of the most important positions in the industry, actually, because you're passing very important information around to everybody in the UK that's involved in the hunting or shooting industry and all the consumers uh, that are involved in that as well. And I met her and I thought, wow, this super hot chick that's got this super high profile job. Um, And I started uh, dating her and we long story short uh, ended up marrying her and then i convinced her to leave her job and that there would be a great opportunity for us to set up a media agency using the skill set that she had of receiving lots of press releases all the time um, from lots of brands that were not communicating themselves as well as they could be and i had a media agency background so our kind of combined skills of understanding how to help brands communicate to consumers better rather than just thinking about the sales channel and that's a bit kind of technical and worky but um, uh, being able to cre- create excitement and desire about products is kind of the marketing background that I had mm-hmm. and her understanding as a kind of copywriter and journalist, those two things came together. And so we started that 15 years ago or so in the UK, um, picked up a few local clients in the UK, uh, worked with Edgar Brothers, the distributor of lots of different brands, but one of them was, was Hornady. We still work with Hornady in the UK. Um, and uh, because of that relationship, we got to sit down and meet Neil to start with, Jens, the uh, guy who works with the European, like the main distributor yeah. in Europe. Um, and so our relationship led to us uh, running some press events in the UK where a number of journalists came from Europe um, and we'd have a representative from Hornady there um, to, if you like, host it. We lay the hunt on and organize everything. Um, and we met Steve, Jason, Neil, etc. And so the relationship started to grow from there. Um, so Tweed Media has had a you know great career of, of uh, or great um journey of, of representing brands our kind of sweet spot is helping neil mentioned it earlier brands go over the pond either way so helping a european brand get traction in the us obviously it's a huge market but it's very nuanced by comparison to to europe and then helping uh, big american brands that try and break through 26 different languages 26 different cultures 26 different it's, ways of hunting yeah, it's, it's so, so battle. completely and and sometimes it's like it's just too much hassle we're not going to bother but actually there's you know, there's there's you know, ten plus million hunters if you aggregate everybody together in Europe. So it's a market worth approaching. But if you you know you break it down, divide that by twenty six different yeah. countries, it starts to get quite With complicated. Different cultural nuances everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So so our job is to try and kind of make that uh, mess more understandable. Or you know, we'll help to represent you and we'll represent you through all of those different countries. So um, and yeah, that's been very successful. Four years ago. Selena and I bought a our first print magazine, um, and we weren't too sure how it was going to work. We got offered it because we were doing so much PR work with print titles. Someone was ready to sort of exit. Guy in his late sixties, he'd set up a magazine called Field Sports Magazine, 
And we thought, how's it going to work having an agency and a magazine? So there was a sort of complication because there's almost a conflict of interest. So we had to kind of work out two separate teams working in very separate ways. Of course, Selena and I would be involved in both, but tactically, Selena would be doing agency work and I would be doing magazine work in the UK. Internationally, I do much more stuff with Tweet Media. So we had to kind of work out this way that certain clients wouldn't feel that someone was getting a better sure. shout in the yep. magazine than someone that wasn't a client. But we managed to negotiate that pretty well. Uh, six months after we bought that, we launched another magazine, Gundog Journal. Um, and then... And these are all distributed in the UK? Just in the UK. You can buy them yeah. overseas, but um, it's UK content for the UK customer, basically. Sure. And then in the summer last year, we bought another five magazines, um, Rifle Shooter, Sporting Shooter, Clay Shooter, Air Gunner, and Air Gun World. Uh, the pellet gun or air gun market is massive in the UK. Four million active participants. Wow. It's non-licensed. Uh, a lot of our other um, firearms and shooting activities are licensed. So um, there's a you know, it's, and it's like um, it's a feeder drug into shooting. So it, like <laughs> it's it's a way that people come into firearms and shooting. So um, and we've got a big chunk of the market there, and we're kind of actively looking to consolidate the rest of the market in the media market. So we've got some late stage conversations at the moment where we're looking at trying to get some more. Uh, media brands on board in the business. So we went from three full-time staff to 23 full-time staff in the summer last year. Uh, that's in the publishing company and likely to grow more this year. So good for you guys. Lots, lots going on. Lots so going there's, on. There's a publishing uh, wing of the company basically, and then there's a PR and marketing side as well. So yeah, we kind of keep the two quite yeah. separate. Tweet Media is is over here, and then Field Sports Press, it's called, is is over here. Separate management team and. Selena and I kind of flip between the both, but um, yeah, we, we try and make sure that there's a sort of church and state divide. So like I say, if you're a Tweed client, you aren't getting an unreasonable amount of, of publicity in the magazine. So yeah. that's the, the main and thing. And on the marketing side, do you want to talk about any of the, 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 the family of brands you kind of work with? Over yeah, here? so um, uh, we work with Leica, who are an optics company, mm -hmm. um, European company based in Germany, lots of production in Germany, also produce high quality um, premium optics in, in Portugal. And we've worked with them for not a dissimilar amount of time as Hornady, actually, well wow. over a decade. And we've helped them with lots of product launches. They've just launched their uh, Geovid Pro 42 line of products at the Dallas Safari Show. We helped with the launch. We created the video for that. So that was something we did, which was cool. Um, we worked with Walther. Um, he'll be familiar with oh, yeah. Walther. They make some fabulous um, pistols and, and other products. Um, helped them with their PDP launch, which is a rip performance duty pistol, which is a really, really solid, solid product. Um, we helped them with that a couple of two or three years ago. Um, we work with the Outdoor Sportsman Group, so they launched. I know you'll be familiar with My Outdoor TV, mm -hmm. which is their, if you like, to make it very simple, their Netflix style on demand yeah. or, or or streaming service, which is a subscription base. We helped them launch that overseas, um, and that's been you know very successful for them. It's helped them go from a US only business to an international business, and we helped them with that. Um, who else do we work with? Rigby. Rigby, of course, yeah. So John Rigby and Company, uh, one of the, the grand old names in British gun making. Um, that was rehabilitated. It was a box of papers in the back of someone's office and a name owned by some Americans. And it was bought by the, obviously, it's a very, you know, um, famous name yeah, in, in, in terms of, yeah, with, yeah. with high quality proprietary cartridges. Yeah. And um, 10 years ago, we got asked to sort of help out with the marketing. Um, and I've sat, if you like, as head of marketing for Rigby since they came back. And that's, again, been a very, very successful road for them there. And that, that fits well with, with Simon's uh, 
background and personality. I mean, he's got to take a fantastic, you know, well-known British brand and help bring it back back to prominence. I mean, several big press events that took place there. I mean, it's fascinating. So Jim Corbett rifles, you went to India, but then, and you should talk about that. The the one cool thing that when I went there for the tour with Mark Newton was you can look through their, their log book and you could see names of people that have bought rifles. And the one thing that I thought was very fascinating was, you know, if you were maybe an aristocrat or from a, a, a you know, a prominent family in England, you were going to go to war, World War One, World War Two, whatever the case might be. You weren't just going to buy an infield. You were going to get a an infield made by Rigby, you know. So yeah. was, you know, that was interesting too. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, with Rigby, um, just uh, uh, this is a fairly lengthy story if we go into the full detail. Probably the most famous bolt rifle, sporting rifle ever to be mm. produced, was was owned by Colonel Jim Corbett. And if you haven't, if if your listeners, watchers of the podcast haven't uh, had the pleasure of reading Jim Corbett's books, it's all awesome. they're, they're very the easy. Huh? Yeah, yeah, the man eaters of Kurmon. Oh, sure, it's that they are so they're, they're such easy reads. It's like the ultimate one two hour plane ride read. You know, it's broken into five volumes, um, and Jim Corbett lived in India, born in India, and he was a, um, a, an officer in the British Army out there. And when there was a cat that was a big problem, killing villagers, he'd be called in to go and deal with it. And he, he writes beautifully his account of, of, you know, chasing these specific cats down. There's one in particular called The Man-Eating Tigress of uh, Champawat. It's in the Guinness World Book of World Records. I think 436 people. It's killed. Fact, fact check yeah. me on uh, that. Yeah. You yeah. need need a fact check. Yeah. But it's 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 the it, it's in the Guinness Book of World Records for the cat that's killed the most people. Wow! And he brought it to book. He managed to track it down, kill it, and um, uh, you know this had terrorised an area of India for a period of time. And to thank him, the um, governor of the local province presented him with a Rigby bolt rifle, a two seven five Rigby bolt rifle. Um, and there's a silver shield engraved with the inscription um, presented to Colonel Jim Corbett for killing the man-eating tigress of Champwa, et cetera, et cetera, from uh, Sir James Hewitt, the uh, whatever, 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 mm-hmm. of the United wow. Provinces. Yeah. And it's fascinating. So this thing has been um, written about in his books, and we know that he was given this thing. And this rifle ex- existed, and then suddenly, like uh, Kaiser, Kaiser Sose, gone. Yeah. Yeah. It just vanished in like the 1960s, and uh, it then suddenly reappeared in a cupboard at his publisher, Oxford University Press, um, and it had no license, uh, and it was going to be destroyed by the police uh, because it's an illegally owned firearm, wow. which is a serious thing in the UK. So okay. we do have guns in the UK, but it's very seriously regulated, um, and there's lots of paperwork and so on. We can have guns. I've got lots of guns. I love shooting. There's a big thriving shooting industry. But it's regulated. You have to have interviews from police to make sure that you're sound of mind and you have your safe checked and so on. But if you yeah. want one and you're a good guy, you can get one. So that's not the issue. But this gun was not owned by a good guy. It wasn't in a safe place. It was, you know, on every level it was bad. Someone was going to get in trouble for this. The publisher got in touch with Rigby, the maker of the rifle, and said, we're in trouble. You know, we found, yeah. a, we found a gun. <laughs> I, I mean, for, as a, you know, as an aficionado or just, you know, the history is 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 immense here i'm glad that they had the forethought to contact rigby because had they not i don't want to get in trouble yeah of course course. you you, you know because 
Yeah, I mean that's a, that's it, a that thing is legendary. Yeah, it happens when you know grandfather's house gets um, uh, you know someone uh, passes away and their house is being kind of uh, pre-sold and all the stuffs being taken out. Oh my god, here's a luger. You know they'll yeah. find like yeah. stuff from and, and got from the war. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. There's like you know. Uh, it, amongst all the kind of Nazi daggers and what, oh, my, there's a Luger and some ammunition, you know. Uh, so that stuff happens and there's a procedure that has to happen. Uh, and so instead of yeah, ringing the police, it got to Rigby. Rigby were able to put a case together. This is a kind of museum piece. It's historic and it's really important. There, there was no malice or anything. So they were able to, to, to rescue this really wow. important historic piece. history for sure. 100%. And um, there's uh, chapters in the book where he talks about shooting specific cats um, and he uses the rifle, he falls over, he falls down like a, a rocky cliff, and he's using the rifle as like a, a stick to sort yeah, of... Yeah, it's a rudder. Yeah. And, there's, uh, and you can see dents. He talks about a specific dent in the side of the buttstock, and, and it's there, which is so cool. It, you know, it, without question, it is that rifle. Um, and I was talking to Mark, the MD. Mark's a great friend of mine. Um, we're godparents of each other's kids. And I didn't know him when I started working with him. He's become a really good friend, you know, over the... the eight, nine-year period we've worked together. He's, you know, very close Mark, friend. Mark Newton. Mark Newton, yeah, the MD of, of Rigby. Um, this was, I don't know, five or six years ago. We were talking about what could we do to celebrate the fact that this amazing historic artifact, it's like the Holy Grail for hunters, you know, right. that it's been found. Like, what's the first thing you do if you found the Holy Grail? You'd probably take it to Jerusalem, wouldn't you? Like, <laughs> well, we found the, the Holy Grail of hunting rifles. Let's take it to the place where he shot these cats. So, like, it's right. got to go back to India. Like, that's the right thing to do. But it, uh, hunting's been banned since uh, the partitioning with Pakistan and India, which is like 1960. So hunting's been banned. You can't own firearms. It just doesn't happen. So how are we going to do this? So we had to write letters to the um, uh, Indian High Commission in London, the Home Office. Like We had to go around the houses, two years' worth of kind of campaigning uh, and a sizable donation of a Land Cruiser pickup that was going to go to the Jim oh, the Corbett park. National Park yeah. as a uh, vet rapid reaction vehicle. So a, a good donation. Like, mm -hmm. why do you want to come back? We want to give a donation to support conservation of the, the big cats there. Uh, and eventually it all got signed off and approved. We had to take the firing pin out. I get it. It's right right thing to do. Yep. But we were able to take Jim Corbett's rifle back to India. Hadn't been there for a very long time. So uh, it was a very cool thing to do. So we took it to multiple sites where he either shot a cat not with that rifle but it's there's a big account of it mm -hmm. but there's one place rudra prayag which is where the confluence of two rivers that make the ganges the, okay. the headwaters of the ganges and um uh, there was a this leopard had killed you know over a decade it had completely terrorized rudra prayag which is this sort of town on the site like foothills of the himalayas and he um he used this rifle um to shoot the cat and he used a very very root because like 1920 something again fact check me but it's it's you know 100 years ago the very first kind of flashlight you know this is like mm. and he, he torch he used it i'm i'm translating my english into <laughs> <laughs> aluminium yeah yes. yeah yeah aluminum uh so uh he it, so there's an amazing account of it and there's a monument where um it says you know this is the place where uh jim corbett killed the yeah, man cool. so and we had the rifle back there, and the locals had created a um, ceremony. So there was seven or eight hundred people. Oh wow! Uh, for the ceremony, gets gets good here though. Um, and uh, they had uh, so Jim Corbett's birthday is a national holiday in India. He's treated as a like absolute even a hundred years after the biggest one of the biggest uh, 
reserves or, or national parks is called the Jim Corbett National Park. So he was hunter turned conservationist, and he's one of like the really, you know, celebrated people who had a hunt illustrious hunting career. It was not a trophy hunter, you know. He was he was providing a yeah, service. He was taking, he was taking care of problem animals. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, uh, you know, it was just amazing to have like you know so many people there to come and see the rifle, and it, it literally felt a bit like um, you know Turin Shroud. Holy Grail, mm. Ark, you know, there were these sort of things. It's just Wasn't there some ancestors there of some people or something like that? What was the Um so well we got the, the lots of weird things. Or, pardon happened me, descendants, me. I mean, sorry. Yeah, lots of weird things. There was a descendant of um so a descendant of someone who had been killed by yeah. the leopard. Oh, uh, wow. and it was a I think it was a great a great grandchild, mm. but they burst into tears when they saw the rifle. Yeah. I mean it was just this like really moving experience. And they had, you know, thirty little kids sitting in the front, cross-legged, like looking. You know, it was just amazing. And 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 they like the local, the colonel from the army base, um, came and like gave a speech. And uh, Corbett, just by chance, was the um, was a colonel in the same regiment that was stationed in this hill barracks. And we got invited up to the uh, hill barracks for afternoon tea at the officers' mess. And they all play bagpipes. It's there's so much sort of, <laughs> in like, India, nice. But there's a sort of like colonial footprint yeah, of course, out there. Yeah. It felt mm-hmm. more British than being in Britain. I have to be honest. But, wow. it, but, but look, I mean, it, the, the whole thing. We should write a book about the stuff Rigby's done because it's absolutely amazing. Um, uh, but uh, you know, taking Corbett's rifle back to India to those those places in the in the very tree that he sat and built his machan. There's still the wire wrapped around it from the machan. to hold him up there. To because machan is a is a platform yep. that you would um, I don't know. No, like in uh, Ghost in the Darkness. Remember when he sits up on the top? He makes him his own machine, I guess. Yep. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and um, and he sat there for a few nights, Patterson. and then eventually um, uh, got the got the leopard, um, and and freed the people from this, you know, terrible, um, you know, uh, ten year period of of like curfew, yeah, four hundred yeah. and something. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. Wow. So yeah, I mean, it's a, a lot of people. I think I think the leopard was like two something. The tiger was four something. But yeah, I mean, oh, the uh, leopard had killed two hundred, two hundred odd people, grief. and it was taking people out of the houses at night. So straw roofs, and they would just go in and just take someone out of the yeah. house. So they were just petrified. So uh-huh. I can see why Corbett's legend has turned him into a national hero. Yeah, certainly. And now, and now his, like I say, his um, his holiday, his birthday is is national holiday, public holiday. So that's pretty cool. So yeah, I mean, that's just <laughs> the tip of the iceberg of the cool things I've been lucky enough to do in the industry, but. We took a camera crew. We took uh, photographers. I I like taking photos. Yeah. I'm not a professional photographer, but I like taking photos. And it's been uh, like, you get paid should, to take photos. Well, so that would make you a professional. Yeah. We should devolve quickly, though. That if if anybody's uh, not familiar with Tweed Media, I mean the the images that I've seen just in my short time here at Hornady that you guys have produced. Just well, that's very, very take kind. your breath away that's, stuff. That's very um, kind. I think obviously good equipment, good, good equipment, equipment, a lucky moment, a very fast shutter. So one of those shots will end up being good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. the background and some of these these landscapes are just yeah. you know. I think my that one of the things for me is you could put a really technically sound wedding photographer into a hunting environment, and his pictures would be rubbish. They'd be terrible, garbage. You wouldn't want to use them. Uh, you know, I, you put me outside of an environment I'm really used to, and mm-hmm. I wouldn't be able to deliver. Whereas in the mountains or in a hunting scenario, I know I'm very comfortable in that and I know how to tell a story through a camera. So like that feels like I'm, it just feels very natural to do that. I know the things that as a hunter I would want to see and all if you like using the photos to tell a narrative, mm-hmm. I think that's really, really yep. important. It's not just taking a technically good photograph, it's telling a story with the picture. That's very cliched to say, but I think it is actually... Well, and I've 
said this before, there's a difference between taking a, a picture and making a photograph. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the making of the photograph is understanding the, the context behind what the image is going to represent. Yeah. I mean, and imagine the stuff I'm going to get with Steve in Pakistan. Wow. That's going to be insane. Look at this. A hundred free bullets when I buy these select Hornady reloading tools. Wow, 500 free bullets with certain Hornady reloading presses and kits. Well, what do they have? Let's get loaded. There's no better time to stock your reloading bench. Choose from the most durable, precise, and convenient tools on the market and receive free bullets to get you loaded. Visit Hornady.com for further details. Next time we get loaded, I'm buying... So another time I hunted with Steve, uh, we went to Russia together uh, to the Caucasus Mountains to shoot this crazy creature called a tur, T-U-R, uh, and I think it classifies uh, in the Capra and Ovis. Yeah, it's a bit like a like an Ardad kind of on its own. Okay. I think it's a bit Lord of the Rings is what it is. Middle Earth. Yeah, it's a bit orc slash goblin. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very crazy looking creature, um, and it was such a tough hunt. It was one of the most... Um, I'd, I'd, the year before, I'd been to Nepal to hunt a blue sheep. Again, something that sounds like it's in Lord of the Rings. Um, and a tar. I shot a Himalayan tar in the Himalayas. Also shot one in New Zealand. But um, the getting to shoot one in in, the, yeah. in, in its where it evolved, its mm-hmm. natural habitat, for me, was very special. Actually, it's one of the only times I've been moved almost to tears where I was just... I shot a tar early in the morning. Big, long build-up to it. Physically very tough. 16,000 feet elevation. And, you know, sunrise on the Himalayas in, in the most physically challenging environment I've ever been in. You've got 26 Sherpas carrying everything. That just, they're just so friendly and lovely. And it was just like, oh, this is really like taking yeah. my breath away. It was well, like a really serious moment. There's a big, I would say a hefty amount of the population of the world that never sees anything from 16,000 feet. No. Yeah. Let alone, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, not on the ground. It's anyways. amazing. And most of these guys, you know, they're, they're born around 10,000 feet and yeah. they're, you know, up and down. Their body um, is just... But yeah, that... If anyone get, I mean, even to go, oh, I've got two daughters. What was the what was the seven. movie with the uh, guy, the Nepalese, or was he? No, he was a Sherpa himself. The guy that was oh, the, Thirteen Peaks. Thirteen Peaks. If anybody yeah, wants to it, watch that, that yeah, gives you a good insight cool. into the. I mean, because Sherpa is not just a term for people that carry yeah, things. No, Sherpa is a it's group a bad, of people. It's yeah. a badass race of people. Yeah, yeah. they're yeah. they and they that it, guy they get it done. That guy embodies that. Holy cow! Yeah, yeah no, he's movie. he's a, he's a very serious dude. Um, but yeah, no, Nepal. What a place if you get the chance to visit. And I've, I've I've got two daughters, five and seven. As soon as they're old enough, I'll take them on a, yeah. a, a trekking holiday there. It blew my mind. And I, Beautiful, probably, because, I mean, you described it. You know, you start down in kind of a jungly area, and then obviously you get up yeah, in the alpine. But above the, above the tree line. Um, but, you know, just being in Kathmandu, think how many, you know, uh, mountain climbing campaigns have mm. been staged from Kathmandu. Like, such, like, you feel like you're soaking up the history there. It's unbelievable. Um, it's third world. It feels there's a sort of rustic chaos to it. There's a sort of melting pot of religion. Um, there's a, it's very friendly. Everyone's you don't feel like it's on top, and you need to watch over your shoulder, which I felt like in some other yeah, sure. cities, you know, African cities. You know, you can feel quite threatened, but in Kathmandu, it just feels fair. It's very Buddhist and and Hindu, and it's very very relaxed and chilled. And there's this chaos, but it's sort of I don't know. It sort of washes over you. It's amazing, absolutely amazing. And then the, the, the trekking and the hiking is just like next level. We took a um, we took a charter plane around Everest. I mean, who gets to do that? Yeah. Who, who does this stuff, Absolutely. you know? Like, we've been so lucky in our industry to yeah. do some of this stuff. But we, we took a charter plane around Everest. And it was, again, like, like ha- unbelievable, yeah. mind-blowing, absolutely mind-blowing. And then um, when, we went, when we went 
to the day we were going to start the hunt, we'd had like three or four days in Kathmandu, helicopter down the greater Himalayan range, stopped in at Pokro to refuel. Um, and we're flying, you're flying above 10,000 feet. So the pilot's got oxygen on. Um, so you're, you're aware of, mm. you know, like the magnitude. And you see, I think, four of the biggest peaks in the world as you're flying down yeah. this Annapurna and other ones. I mean, it's wow. amazing. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, just as a trekking holiday, unbelievable. You know, and, and ultimately, one of the things I like the most about hunting is the flora and fauna beyond the pursuit of whatever it is. Absolutely. Yeah, and the absolute, people and the culture that you're Yeah, I absolutely around. love the pursuit. That's amazing. But actually, when you, when you net it all down, if you go for a two-week trip, how long is the actual hunt versus everything else? So if you don't like the everything else, then you might not like those kind of like expedition hunts. And the expedition hunts are the ones that I really like doing because I think they take you so far out of your comfort zone, yeah. so far away from your normal day-to-day. And you, you don't know, it's just amazing. I find it's like massive control-alt-delete in my heart and mind. It's a big reset yeah. for you. Sure. Know, and it kind of helps me. I haven't done it. I haven't been on a really big one for... Um, I was lucky went uh, elk hunting with you yeah. Last, last fall, which was, you know, six days of, of amazing scenery, but it was staying in quite comfortable accommodation. Yeah, sure. It was three meals yeah. a day. You know, there was a very different thing. Whereas when you go kind of crazy backcountry stuff, you, you know, it's, um, you feel quite small and insignificant in that scenario. And, that, yeah. and that's a really good feeling where yeah. we evolved. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one thing to do it in North America and it's another to do it somewhere like Nepal or, yeah. you know, and somewhere if you didn't, in Middle Earth. If you didn't truly appreciate the entire experience just the hunt wouldn't be enough to get you through that if you're tired you're climbing yeah you're not sleeping well mm-hmm. just the entire environment the, one of my favorite sayings is the man that likes the journey will walk a lot further than the man that likes the destination yeah yeah, yeah and, and you've got to enjoy yeah. that whole ride Absolutely. because it's you know i i forget where i was but you know I've, I've been fortunate to do some cool things too and some of them have been right alongside simon so we've had some you've had one or two haven't we some grand adventures but you know, sometimes you got to pinch yourself and look around at the scenery and go, huh. I mean, we were in southern France in the Alps and boop, there's Mont Blanc just yeah, right over yeah, here, you know. That. I mean, it's, it's just some beautiful places. I have places. to say, I, I think I was seeing two Mont Blancs at that moment because it was after quite a late night, it seems to oh, the night yeah. before. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'd, we'd been enjoying some French hospitality. Oh, in the the, all those guys that were singing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, in a little <laughs> French tavern. Yeah. Who's yeah. that guy? There was a guy, he was like a, he's a friend of a friend of ours and he would be dressed to the nines, smoking constantly, French guy, yeah. and drinking constantly. Yeah. And uh, singing into the wee hours of the morning, like out in the street and everything. Just, oh, it was very just, funny. Yeah, being, yeah. <laughs> living and, the and life. Then, you know, up at, you know, six o'clock yeah, before fine. got like- dressed again to the nines. ready for some alpine, alpinism, yeah. you know, like, yeah. let's, let's do it. With his tie, his, his tweed outfit, the yeah. whole nine yards. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I think it was a jockey. Wasn't that the story? Like back in the day, he it, might have yeah, been a jockey. Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, like he. Yeah, yeah. It, but, but great. I mean, yeah, he was uh, fantastic. The, the, the amount of amazing yeah. stories like that, where you know, uh, it doesn't all around uh, surround um, hospitality in different countries, but yeah. yeah, sometimes that makes it quite amusing. Yeah, it is. It's, yeah, it's, it's all fun. part of the experience. Yeah, it's all yeah, part yeah, of the culture. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. normally yeah. American guys aren't. Well, I mean, I guess it depends where you are, but normally people aren't wearing a a tweed suit and a tie till three in the morning singing songs out in the, out in the middle of the street. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of some other amusing ones. We've, um, uh, you've been to Scotland. Yeah. And, and that's something we should talk about. Yeah. So you're, you're British. Oh, uh, so I was born, born and raised in England an hour South of London in a County called Sussex. But my dad is of Scottish heritage and has Scottish blood in him. He moved up to Scotland 30 years ago. Uh, and I followed him 10 years ago. Um, to the area where my 
ancestors are from, um, which is called the Borders. Um, my surname's Barr, which is a Scottish surname. My middle name is Kerr, K-E-R-R. It's a clan name for the area that we moved to. It was by chance. Which we would say is Kerr. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Kerr. <laughs> Kerr. <laughs> We've been going back and forth about <laughs> Two, two, two nations separated by a common language. Yeah. yeah, you must read a book. It's a really good book by a British journalist called John Sopel. It says, if only they didn't speak English. <laughs> it's, about, it's about you guys. It's really good, actually. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I lived on the banks of the River Tweed, and I have a business called Tweed Media. That was complete coincidence, by the way. It wasn't a coincidence that it's a salmon fishing river. Um, one of my real true passions. I love all outdoors activities. Salmon fishing is something that really gets under my skin, so I love my fishing. And there's no salmon fishing in England, really. Mm. No, nothing of uh, real volume. There's a few odd fish caught here and there, if you're lucky, particularly in the south. Fabulous trout fishing, but salmon, these amazing migratory species uh, that come into our freshwater and then go to sea and do their thing and then come back again. And I was just kind of like mesmerized by this. So the idea to go and live near where I could literally walk down to the river and try and fish for them was amazing. Yeah. So, so Tweed, the River Tweed was where we set up camp for, for seven, seven and a bit years. Um, and we now live in central Edinburgh, which is the uh, capital city of Scotland. Uh, which Cultural, is cool, very, yeah. It's cool a place, yeah. Beautiful castle, got the tattoo in the summer. Yeah, so it's, it, in the centre of it, you've got a big volcanic rock with a, you know, cut of that. there's been a settlement. And why wouldn't you have a settlement on it? It's like strategically like the coolest mm. place to see everything around you. You know, you've got an estuary, so... Yeah, you'd be able to control so much stuff around you. It's a, it's a, and almost unimpregnable. You know, it's basically you don't need to put much fortification on it to be able to just kill anybody that's coming to try and get you. Right so, on. Yeah, back uh, in the day, it yeah, was a very yeah, tactical serious, operation. Like the British. Yes. Yeah, 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 English. The English. Pardon yeah, me. Yeah, Sorry, yeah, the, English. the English. Yeah. So, Britain is an so, island. Yeah, you've got uh, the castle on the top, and then um, then there's a bit called the old town, which is like kind of from medieval to modern day and then the area i live in is called the new town but that's deceptive because it's still 150 years old beautiful georgian properties cobbled streets looks very sort of mary poppins mm. um big wrought iron beautiful uh, and statues of poets all throughout statues the city. of poets yeah all that sort of stuff so it's sort of got a bit of harry potter and a bit of mary poppins about it edinburgh um, and it's great i can get out to hunting areas in 15 minutes from the city center which is great so nice you know i can be by grouse moors, by salmon rivers, by, you know, stalking roe deer 15 minutes from the city centre. So 500,000 people, it's not a big city, uh, but it's very lovely. It's a cool place. And, and you know, everybody that comes there, like, oh my God, Edinburgh's amazing. And that's why we moved up there. We really, really like it. So that's cool. The Highlands is uh, probably a two-hour drive yeah. you know, yeah. north from Edinburgh. Um, and that's where you get Red Stags, which is the sort of classic, you know, Scottish experience where you stay in a castle and... Uh, gentleman's hunting so you don't have to get up early you have a nice nice breakfast and then you casually head up the hill at about nine o'clock in the morning get your stag shot put it on the back of a pony and then come off the hill three or four o'clock in the afternoon <laughs> and then go and sit in the bath and drink some whiskey and that's whis True. yeah that's that, that's uh whiskey um with an ey not scotch yeah and scotch yeah yeah so that's that's how that works <laughs> yeah. so um yeah that's the scotland's amazing it has um uh uh, the only population of red grouse in Europe, so it's a, a species unique. Uh, you've got different grouse species in North America, um, and uh, they're, they're very popular to shoot. And um, uh, if you're a, an owner of a, a grouse moor where they live, 
you'll try and manicure that area to be the absolute optimal conditions for them to breed. You can't rear them. They, they don't like being reared. Mm-hmm. So you have to just create the perfect uh, balanced habitat for them so that they do their thing. Of course, good luck with the weather. Yeah. But if it's all good, then um, then they get driven to people standing in, in uh, little little bunkers called grouse butts and the, the beaters push them over them and they'll shoot them. So it's pretty cool. Sounds like a good time. It's good fun, yeah. It's, it is good fun. We've got... Um, Speaking of, of deer species in the UK, we've got six native species of deer. Could you think? Neil, you've been to the UK. What are they? Native? Native species. Native? or Classified as native. Oh, because they've been there not, long enough now? Not invasive. Non-native. Well, roe deer. Yep. Chinese water deer. Yep. Muntjac. Yep. Fallow. Yep. Red, red deer. Yep. I'm missing one. What's the other one? Sika. Sika. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very good. I'm impressed. Close. The Sika slipped my mind cause yeah so i guess probably the true the truly indigenous species would have been roe, roe deer roe. which is a cousin of the white tail so so the, the native deer species so um uh, yeah red deer came on the ice bridge fallow deer came with the romans the roe deer have probably evolved there and been there all the time um and then there are three deer which are now classified as uh, native but clearly a chinese water deer did not evolve mm-hmm. there nor the muntjac nor the seeker deer um, although seeker deer is part of the service genus, mm. same as elk, um, and can uh, interbreed with red deer, which is uh, service as well. So um, they have um, uh, managed to populate very comfortably and they're you know, now doing very well. And there are some hybrids between red and seeker. Mm. Are they sterile? No, no, no. No, they can, not. So that animal can reproduce. And crossbreed with red deer. Oh, boy. Yeah. And so they're, but they're very sneaky. So. Uh, hunting them, they're very much like first light, last light, whereas the red deer will be out on the hill all day. They're very different in habit. Where'd the uh, seeker come from, Manchuria? So, so the, the uh, yeah, the seeker yeah. were brought over. Um, I think all the, the Duke of Bedford was responsible for all of this, uh, not the current Duke. I think it was like the sixth or seventh <laughs> Duke. He had a big animal park, um, and um, our forebears, when, when they were making that big, big red map of the world, were collecting things from around the world. But, well, I know you're not, the package holiday didn't exist, so it wasn't, you know, we want to take you to go and see these interesting creatures. We'll bring the creatures back and we'll, yeah. you, can, you can come see them in my place. So, <laughs> so like he would just create this, you know, huge safari park of the weird and wonderful. Um, and two of the things that uh, obviously survived the journey were the muntjac, which is uh, probably the size of a Labrador as a deer, and the Chinese water deer, which is a very s- similar size. Um, and I, we've actually got one of the, the largest single populations of yeah, the Chinese water deer left. It's a it's an endangered species in its natural yeah. habitat and we've actually got a, an over population of them and so we can take a harvestable surplus every year, which is mm-hmm. amazing. And we should probably describe those things. So for some people that don't know, a muntjac has got teeth, like fangs basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like canines. And yes. and, and yeah, yeah. yeah, canines, like pretty large yeah, so there's yeah. one in my office. Yeah. And then uh horns or antlers. And then a Chinese water deer, it's just the bucks, right? No Females, females too. too. Yeah, they, they have big, long fangs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like so, a, so, so it's almost. But no, but no antlers. So yeah. So uh, it's an antlerless deer with long canines. Yeah. Uh, and then you've got the the muntjac, which has got smaller canines but, and small antlers. And then you've got like the roe deer that's got canines and then slightly bigger. Well, they're not massive by comparison. Yeah, it's their. I remember when it's, Jack, their, it's their ivory basically. We took right. Jason Hornady to hunt roe deer. And he shot, you know, a borderline medal because we like your Boone and Crockett system. We've got a measurement system, the CIC measurement system, and you have a bronze, silver, and gold. So if something's a medal buck, it's like a booner. You know, that's how yeah. you would classify it. So Jason shoots this, you know, really good mature buck <laughs> that's the booner, you know, 
medal quality. And he's like, is that it? <laughs> is, is that is that is that a young one? Is that you know? And and it's like no, Jason. That's like a seven-year-old like yeah. master buck. Like that's one of the best bucks. That but they are such cool creatures, though. Yeah. I mean, I wish you know, I wish somebody to brought them over here at some point because yeah. they're a, they're a close relative yeah, to the white tail. They are a cousin, uh, they're and they're, and they're the most widespread deer across uh, the European Europe, continent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So much the same as you know, the white tail is so widespread over here. The 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 roebuck is for or roe deer, sorry, is for us. The cool thing about them is they're in hard antler out of the season that all of the other deer are. So they shed their antlers much, much earlier. So sort of October time, start growing them. And the season kicks in in April. So we can hunt them from April through till October. And their rut is uh, at the end of July. So, oh, you've wow. got, so you've got a male deer species that you can hunt all year round, mm-hmm. which is amazing. So like, mo- well, all the rest of ours are aligned with yours, which yep. will be you hunt them in fall. Mm-hmm. Whereas the roe deer, you've got spring and summer stalking, which is awesome. You know, you've got something... Yeah, you're getting up at like 3 a.m. Everything's complete. I mean, it's beautiful. You've done oh, it. It's, good. it's the blue it's bells. Ma- it's, ma- it's, it's, it's yeah. very magical. So um, there's there's so much to hunt over there. So the other thing, like on a mutch, the muntjac are kind of a tropical deer, and they they are breeding 365 basically. And they can only live in the southern part of the of England, right? No, that that it's now the most widespread deer species. They've been in the north UK. now. Can yeah, they yeah. make it through the winter? Yeah, apparently. yeah. It's now the most widespread. But we don't have really hard winters. Maybe yeah, up true. high, but you know where I live, it's it's on or around freezing. What's that in Fahrenheit? I don't 32. 32. Right, okay, yes. yeah. So it's on or around 32. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know when you guys are going to get with the program and get metric. I think it's <laughs> about time. Yeah. 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 Well, actually saying that, this is something Neil and I joke about. We, uh, I, I like shooting rifles a lot, and, and that's something I've done quite an amount of. And when you're at the range zeroing, you're in metric. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to zero at 100 meters, but I'm going to hold an inch high. So we mix imperial yeah, and metric. It, yeah. So it's an inch high at 100 meters. You're like, how can you program so, that into so, any <laughs> ballistics app? Like, so they fill their they fill their their vehicle up with petrol, yeah. and it's in liters. Liters, right. But when they're measuring distance, when they're driving, it's in miles. Yeah, so in our car, if you're looking at efficiency, it's miles per gallon, but you're putting liters in. Yeah. So we're in this like very strange. All our road signs are in miles per hour, but we're taught in metric in school. So we like, still use things like stones and yeah, whatever. Sto- else. Yeah, stones and ounces. Yeah. So something. Well, we don't. don't it's change. kilos. Like yeah. measured in kilos. Not here. <laughs> no, I know. What do you measure? But the Canadians. What do, do you measure in like big gulp cups? I forget what's that. <laughs> what is it? Ounces. Yeah. yeah. Ounces. Ounces. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> Sorry yeah. for the viewer out there. They don't know. There's yeah. a lot to well, this. You said yeah. you do a lot of rifle shooting since you've been uh, working. Can I just say I, yeah. I shot my first PRS match? Yeah. In well, October well, that's last what I year. Yeah, that was awesome. So I wanted. I loved it. I was going to tee that up for you to talk about the evolution of Hornady products as you've seen them since you started working with us. And how you've seen that shooting culture in America and in Europe change, and where you're, where that's at now, and then culminate with obviously the PRS match. Yeah, which yeah. Is- I mean, so you know, um, uh, you know, I love guns, I love shooting, I love hunting. I've been in and around firearms all my life, uh, and it's sometimes dis- <laughs> I'd love to live in the US because there's so much opportunity to scratch that itch. Like everywhere you turn, there's another league of something that's been set up, or there's another. You know, like you guys are front running pretty much everything to do with sporting firearm participatory activities in the world. Like right. you name it. If, so, if there's a way of doing something cool with firearms, you've done it. If there's a, a league or a sport. So, you know, I think Hornady has been very much uh, interwoven into that journey of, of uh, the shooting sports industry and actually has led in some respects. So, you know, with PRS, some of the products that, that Hornady's brought to the table 
um, that's helped to improve the sport itself or it's it's been it's offered sport to a different uh, level of competitor because the accuracy has improved it's not only for the super elite it means you can access it you can shoot you don't have to home load you can shoot factory load you know the factory loaded ammunition that you can buy to shoot in PRS more than good enough right. you know and and then if you want to go to the extreme level like a tips you know like now we produce the very best projectile you can possibly use for match shooting like this is the next level of and and so it's sort of you know i watch from from where i am and and i'm just amazed that you know absorbing the the customer needs and desires and then developing product around that you know that's always what you know hornady's so progressive on that is listening to what the market wants and then creating the very best product in that category. It's not like we'll follow, we'll we'll create a me too and just market it really well. Mm-hmm. It's like no, no, we'll front run it. We'll 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 you know break the ice and we'll be the one that that you know all the Doppler stuff like the heat yeah. shield tip like that is like pushing boundaries. You know, creating you know new cartridges. Very lucky to shoot the seven mil PRC. Uh, you'd like. Led me to believe I was the first person to shoot an elk. You now, were that I knew now, of now at the 15, time. 15 oh, no, people no, have, one, like, one, it's like one. 15 yeah. people have come Only forward. One. Actually, I was told I was the first. Anyway, I, I got to go. You're the up. prettiest girl at the prom. Yeah, Don't I, I was one of, one of the first to shoot. And, you know, what, what, a, what a sort of a culmination of so many different technologies where Hornady's listened to the market. You know, you've got a heat shield tip. You've got the most ballistically efficient 7 mil cartridge ever developed um, using all of the amazing technology that Hornady's got access to. And then packaging it up and marketing it really well and making it desirable and cool and all those things. Obviously, I'm part of that because I shot something with it and I was right. in a <laughs> marketing campaign. But you know, ultimately, you know, from my point of view, Hornady is, uh, you know, it is that sort of, um, uh, it's the opinion leader, it's the voice leader, it's it's then you know creating innovative solutions to problems that might be out there in the marketplace or or scratching itches for people, making cool products, things that people yep. don't really need but are just cool. Yeah, uh, and I think that's also really good. So yeah, I mean, in that 15 years, I've seen you know multiple iterations and and some of the things that have been uh, launched that I've seen launched are just you know stellar products that are like you know generational changing kind of stock shooting style products. 17 HMR, you know, like there's some big stuff that's dropped. Six five Creedmoor, you know, these are never big. heard of it. The, the, fun, <laughs> yeah. the fun ones are always the ones that we do, and everybody goes, "Oh, I didn't know I needed that until you told me I need, or until you showed it, and now I need it." You know, those are the those are the fun ones. Yeah, that yeah. people just didn't think about. Well, and, the, and to summarize everything you said very eloquently, it's the word innovation. Yeah, and that's something that you know, having worked on the research I think he and development, said, I think he said innovative. Yeah, I think, I think you know, it, but like I think you can be, you can show innovation, but I think it's it's you're not just innovating for innovation's sake. You're listening to the market exactly. and innovating around need rather than just creating stuff just so you've got a new product to yeah. launch. Well, that's yeah. true. Like, how many home runs have you had with products where it like just fits the hole? It's not a square peg being pushed in with marketing yeah, and dollars. That's the, you know, you, 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 the wheel has been invented, so don't do that. There, you gotta you gotta come up with uh, something else, right? Yeah. So let's let's do something that makes sense. But it all generally comes from our own interests and, 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 and our passion for making something that's mm-hmm. better for our own use because that's the same thing that you're going to like and yeah. he's going to like and she's going to like. The Hornady Ford Off is the most advanced ballistics calculator available on both app form, on Android and Apple, on the Hornady website, as well as available in the Hornady Kestrel. If you're interested in ballistics or do any sort of medium to long range shooting where ballistic solutions are required, the app is free and it will give you the most accurate trajectory predictions possible.
And one yeah. of the one of the things that I I really really like about the business, and you know, we've worked with um, groups that have associations with other, um, uh, Edgar Brothers, for example. We're doing some stuff with Freedom and Vista, and there's ammo brands there, and there's a different CEO every two years. Like there's this turnaround of of like senior management. So in terms of product development and and direction and vision, and I'm not criticising those businesses at all. But what I really like about Hornady is you've got the Hornady family who are deeply yeah, committed, sure. deeply committed, you know, third generation committed to this sector, to understanding it, to, you know, Steve in his early 60s now, <laughs> he's a bit older than that. Um, I think he's in his early 70s now, but he's, you know, he's going to Pakistan to go hunting, you know, still, as, yeah, you still know, part of as the... long as he can do it, he'll do it. Yeah, for, which he could hang amazing. it up at any time and... He doesn't, you know, he, yeah. he's, and, and, and Jason, you know, his commitment to it is, is unwavering. He shot a, a Spanish slam of Ibex yeah. in December, you know, like they believe it, they love it. They're, you know, they're the real deal. It's not something that's just a line on a spreadsheet and a box in a warehouse. Yeah, precisely. This is something that, that they connect with their consumers through a shared passion. Mm-hmm. And I think that leads to this idea of listening to a market need and then innovating around that. And I think that's really, and I think if you've got this like high turnaround of senior management, you're never going to quite get that. And I think right. that's why Hornady, one of the reasons that Hornady no, it is. has There's been no able, doubt about been it. able and, to, to lead that. And I think we would all agree that, you know, I'm, I, I appreciate them allowing us to do our jobs. You oh, know, yeah. that, that's a big deal. You know, they allow us to do our jobs and they have always been just fantastic. And like you said, I mean, th- we don't come off the rails. When we're going straight forward that path, that's the way we go. And, and, and they're... <laughs> They're leading the charge, typically. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, I'm a marketeer, and I know that Hornady is, uh, I had it um, by a CEO of a, another American business, a, a business I respect. We were talking about Hornady, and he said, mm. in terms of marketing, Hornady makes its own weather. Yeah. And I was like, that's a really cool thing to say. Mm-hmm. And that's all credit to you guys in the in the kind of comms and marketing team to, to you know, have other industry professionals at a senior level respect the marketing team to create its own weather that's a big thing yeah you know it's high pressure because it means any new product launch has got to work but on off the back of the seven mil plc you should be pretty happy because that that's that turned out all right it turned out, it turned all out right. okay yeah, for yeah. the first three months of its life yeah it's, yeah, it's, done, it's done okay done well. no no it's cool really good so no it's it's good and you know the uh, i guess the the one challenge and i know the international market's really really important for for hornady it's like a you know um a, again i've worked with you guys for over a decade and i've seen you know, massive growth year on year on year on year, which compounding over 10 years, you know, where Hornady is now in Europe where, compared to where it was when I first started. It's amazing. But that's, a, that's another one. So, you know, again, like you said, we don't, we don't change CEOs every two or three or four or five years. So we stay on that path. And that's a thing that, is, that affects a lot of companies when it goes to export business. When things are, you know, tough over here, demand goes through the roof, a lot of those allocations that would be going yeah. to Europe or to elsewhere in the world get pulled back to try to meet that demand here. Yeah. Well, we maintain focus on making sure that we keep all of our customers happy. Yeah. And and that's a commitment that, you know, is unwavering because our leadership doesn't change. Mm-hmm. You know, that yeah. that's a big deal. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a unified effort. And one of the things that I think really helps that fight is, when, at least when I was in the product development side of things, developing products specifically for the European market. Yeah. There's a lot of cartridges and bullets and products from Chamber other manufacturers that, that 
that are just regurgitated. Yet yeah, we use these in America, so we'll just you know send that yeah. over to Europe. Like sending sending American whitetail over yeah. to yeah yeah. But, but, but it's great ammo. I've it used is it great ammo, but it's nice that you know we took a, a very purposeful look at the cartridges that are popular, the cartridge designs that are popular, and and what that looks like, and how can we bring the most accuracy out of those traditional chamberings, and what can we do from a bullet design that's going to yeah. give the European and the international hunter you know, what they want and yeah. really I, catered products to them. I'd say credit to Jens Tiggies, who's, uh, who works with you very yeah, closely. Yeah, he's a champion. Yeah, he's it. a champion and he really, really gets ballistics and he really gets the European market. And I think it's really important to have, you know, someone like that from a very technical point of view to be able to feed that stuff back into you. And mm-hmm. then you react to that. That's, that's, that's innovating around customer need, you know, exactly what I'm saying. Yep. And I think, you know, Jens has been a really good spokesperson, if you like, for the European hunter to be able to kind of, you know, fight the case, not fight the case, but present the case that you then need to build something around. Yeah. Uh, which The I think- thing that's also fascinating when you, you know, a lot of the European folks, it's a very mature market over there. The numbers don't fluctuate a whole lot. So when they look at the American market and how things can fluctuate and how we can add all sorts of new participants, that's just kind of interesting for them because it's not typically how it is over there. Mm. You know, what's the recreational shooting scene look like? And yeah, before we wrap this up, I'd like to get your answer to yeah, what does it look like in in Europe, and then compare that to the PRS type mm, and yeah, the NRL hunter sorry, here. We, we kind of went down, yeah, a, and then went I down the rabbit hole. This is a podcast. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. How, yeah. I went down the rabbit hole. I want yeah, so your it, first PRS match. I want you to culminate so, with that. Uh, I would say, for, from a, a hunting point of view, um, uh, as we said, like say twenty six countries in Europe, it's all a bit different. People have got different styles of rifles, different caliber choices that they like using. It's mm-hmm. you know because You've got chamois in this country. You've got um, moose in this country. You know, you need different things for different right. environments. Um, from a recreational shooting point of view, um, we don't have it as big as you guys have it. No question. Um, it's it's a much smaller market, but uh, it is there. It one hundred percent is there. And actually, in the UK, there is a thriving PRS. Uh, I I've investigated this subsequently. There is a PRS oh, really? league. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got the bug now. Yeah, yeah. There, there is a PRS league, and they they recently had um uh, you know quite a serious competition. And I what I really like about how PRS has been set up in the US is it's replicable as a format anywhere yeah, in the world. Yeah, you know, and you don't need to have someone from the US sort of come and like here's how it goes. It's actually pretty straightforward. Once you know, once you understand the the basic principles of it, um, anybody can have a go. Um, and um. Uh, I would say the the uh, uh, much of the land in the UK and much of Europe actually, there's not a lot of public land and 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 having the space to be able to have the kind of ranges that you've got here, there's less opportunity for that stuff, okay. particularly owned privately. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's lots of military ranges, but you know being able to get access and so on, it's much much Very harder. Tough. So I actually feel that there might be a bigger opportunity to do the rim fire because mm. um, you only really need 300 yards for that. Yeah. You know, you can scale it back um, and that's much more doable. So like having a league of, of you know, it's still the same skill set. It's still, you know, having now competed in a PRS match, I would still enjoy that just as much. And of course, shooting center fire at those longer distances, um, people will find a way and there is space to do it. It just needs commitment from people to want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, it being made as easy as possible, I think I think it will be. Um, we've got quite a few um, long-range venues where you've got steels and so AR500 steel plates and, and stuff in the UK. Um, but it, again, it's like, it's it's really niche. You call it niche, you call it niche. Um, but there are people that are into that. Um, but it's not run as a kind of like competitive league. Um and I don't know whether or not, you know, we've got so far 
there's so so many fewer uh, uh, rifle owners to be able to put into a league. Oh sure. Um, which is a which is a pity because I think it's something yeah. people would really enjoy away from hunting. Um, the bit that I really liked, I got the kind of hunting stuff, but then there's a sort of tactical piece which was super cool. That's what I really liked about it. Sort of blending time pressure, tactical shooting, and then some hunting skills all into this one kind of discipline. Um, the NRL would be very interesting for me because I'm, you know, first and foremost probably a hunter. Although I started my shooting career, competitive shooting, 2-2LR at school, and then I went to shoot 303 at Bisley. Bisley's a very storied shooting range, but it's very, very um, strict. It's yeah. just like square range. Square range. Square range. Like you, you, they, no, they won't deviate from that. They won't let you shoot steals. Yeah. Like the, the danger template, blah, blah, blah. We've tried. We have tried, believe you me. <laughs> Um, so like you can do what you can do. So it's figuring out how you can work around those parameters. But um, you know the the uh, opportunity to sort of promote PRS um, and try and encourage people to look at it in a in a slightly different way. The fact that you go down to the um, ranch in Utah and you create your own yeah, uh, PRS match. It's almost like like what's the magic to be able to go and set up PRS stages if we've got someone with an estate in school, we'd call it an estate rather than ranch, but someone with an estate with the land to do it safely, yeah, for sure. um, where you could set up a PRS match, it's so doable, but you sort of need a will to do that. So it might take a few years, but it, only in the last like two or three years has the Creedmoor caught on in Europe, oh, literally. Yeah. And it's like, you've had that for you know over a decade mm. and it's super hot cartridge still. And I know you, there have been some more that people are excited about as well, but the Creedmoor is a serious staple. Mm-hmm. It's only really hit in the last two or three years now it might be that prs only really hits into you know in another 10 years time but it will it'll happen i'm sure it will i think it will and and that's fun to think about because like there's plenty of people that would enjoy shooting it they just have to you know there's things that have to change people's perspective have to change about using the land and being able to shoot steel targets sure i mean you know, where we were in the south of France, that'd be a fantastic place to go. Yeah. Shoot. So something like that would be yeah. amazing. Yeah. And I mean, look, having an international league would just be so awesome. And it's visually, you know, it's cool. We made a little video about it, didn't we? Yeah. And it was, um, you know, I, you know, my first ever opportunity. It, it was. Um, yeah. Let's grind. talk about that. The gap. Yeah, the grind. gap grind. Yeah. So a what, plug for the grind. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, props to everybody involved in that, because. Uh, for someone that's not shot that discipline before, you're paired with it. So Neil was my pro. So you have an amateur. Loose, loosely. Yeah. yeah. You know, but you have an amateur and a pro paired together. So you've got someone that's, of course, you have to demonstrate a level of, uh, you wouldn't be able to go along if, if it was your first time pulling the trigger on a rifle. So right. I think you need an aptitude for being able to use a rifle. But let, let's sure. assume that you're safe and you know what you're doing with a rifle, but you've never shot PRS. But this is so for you. You get the opportunity to... Um, compete and have not just your pro but everybody's just sharing and passing on information it's like this big sort of like passover of like you know trying to bring this whole new group of people in tribal the... knowledge oh it's yeah. amazing it was mm-hmm. so cool and and um i found it like the, the venue that it was held at what a place i mean it is seriously you know should we talk about your t-shirt and you know <laughs> yeah i mean i was trying to represent <laughs> um uh i had a t-shirt it was kind of a bit of a take on a maga t-shirt it said oh. Make America Great Britain again. Oh, okay. <laughs> Never going to happen. So, yeah. so, and, and so there now, was, are, now people know what we deal with. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we, and there was a, a guy there. Uh, what did he say? He was pretty funny. We, George we probably shouldn't repeat it, but yeah, yeah he, but it was, he, he wasn't pretty, having it. But look, it was all tongue in cheek. Yeah, and, we had, uh, he all, had You know, 240. Because as, I, as yes, I like to remind something. Simon, we, we beat them 
twice. twice. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, and we, you know, we sort of ran off and did our own thing elsewhere for a bit. And, yeah. you know, now look at us. Yeah, glad, <laughs> glad to have you here. Uh, now look at us all. But as far so, as the competitive side goes, I mean, European, uh, um, you know, pistol shooting, that's definitely a thing. Ipsic is, is a big part of the program. The not, great, in the, not in the UK. We're not allowed handguns. Oh, I guess that's true. But the Germans obviously do that quite sure. well. Yeah. And, but there's a Great Britain uh, Palma team that's always been quite competitive. Yeah, we've got, uh, uh, and we do have a very competitive um, 22LR Olympic team. Um, and uh, F class is, is very popular. And, and like the step from F class to PRS isn't that far. Mm. You know, no. it isn't that far. So it's just having the venue that can do it and someone with a vision to want to. And it's way more fun. It's way less stuffy, and yeah. you know, you you can wear a baseball cap back to front, and you you know, like you know, it's it's cool. Whereas uh, I have shot in some F class matches, and you know, it's much more stuffy and yeah, a little know, more rigid. And like you belly. mentioned, where you've got all those people at the gap grind, for example, and everybody is just casually yeah. helping others. Oh, you try this bag, yeah. or you know, and I, you... honestly, there was there was a couple of things that um uh and the the firearms and just everything i was um uh george gardner of ga precision yeah uh he loaned me a rifle amazing i'd never shot a rifle like that before absolutely phenomenal um i was using Leica optics i have a great relationship with Leica, but they've launched a prs scope mm-hmm. um and it was amazing to use that scope in action because we've obviously helped to communicate it and then for me to be able to obviously i've used lots and lots of scopes but never a prs scope in a prs match i've used it on the range but never in a kind of time pressure yeah. situation where you're having to use the ballistic reticle and hold for things because you haven't got time to dial and mm. when you're actually in that live environment you can really assess the the value and quality of the product and it was that was super cool that's um, awesome yeah I'd, I'd highly recommend anybody yeah. that has never shot prs it's the most welcoming massive uh, country band in the evening maybe one or two beers you know yeah. like it was all, all <laughs> just, a good, just yeah. a good time all the way around so yeah. you were using a george rifle what cartridge were you shooting uh, it was uh, the six mil GT, wasn't it? Yeah, I can't remember six. Um, Probably was it a six, six GT or six one GT. Old? Six GT. It was a six GT. Yeah, six, six GT, GT with hundred nine grain ELDM. Yeah. yeah, and um, and it was great. It was real. I mean, I had a couple of clean rounds, which was amazing nice. to be able to do that. Um, I had some where it was targets that I should have been um, easily able to do it, and and for some reason flinched, rushed it, just didn't quite get my head in the zone, um, and you feel there's a challenge and there's lots of room to improve, which is why you go and do something like that. You want to get better and better each time you do it. Yeah. So um, it was like, you know, I don't know, addictive. I want to go and, yeah. I want to go and do more well, of it. The, just the way, you know, you, you have these preconceived notions going into it. If you, and I remember this from my first few matches and the first stage to the last stage, how much you're able to learn your first few matches, the learning curve between first yeah. stage to last stage on a, on a two-day match. Oh my gosh! You yeah. you can book so much information just from yeah. doing it, and totally. it is addictive. And 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 again, it was like it's not being taken too seriously. So you feel like you've got people there that you know either pros aren't really competing hard; they're just yeah. trying to watch the AMs and make sure the AMs are having getting fun. it right and having fun. And it was just a really cool. I met some super cool people there. Yep. Um, I had a an amazing time. I love talking guns and ammo and hunting and stuff. And it's like that's the place to do that. That's the place. It's like, 600 people all ready to talk about <laughs> yeah, exactly Yeah, it was fun because Simon was there with his uh, British accent, so it was, it was a nice novelty, novelty. on our, yeah. yeah, I think I was the only one, so uh, <laughs> the, the, the only Brit in, in town, so 
Yeah, yeah everyone was very welcoming. The rest of us have highly modified British accents. Yeah, yeah no, every, highly every... modified uh, English language too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. Improved. <laughs> yeah. We're, yeah. we're the we're the Ackley improved version of yeah. the English yeah. language. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll yeah. we'll see about that. Yeah, <laughs> if only people knew. There's been. 10 plus years of us debating this. Yeah, we have yeah, debated it. We've debated it last night. There'll yeah. be another debate tonight <laughs> yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah. It, it goes on and on. But, but deep uh, friendship and appreciation. Yeah, and, and guys, I'm super happy to work with you. It's a, it's a great thing. I'm proud to work with Hornady. This is a, you know, and I hope it lasts for my lifetime in this industry because I'm really proud to have the association. And Likewise. I'm not just saying it. The products yeah. are amazing. Um, and the people that work in the business are amazing. So it's super cool. Keep up the good work, guys. Yeah, much appreciated. I know on behalf of the Hornadies that we really enjoy working with you as well. And the return on investment is I mean, just, easy. just seeing Once, some of know, those when images. Is, when you're friends with people, it's, it's so much easier to, to do business with each other, you know? And, yep. but you know, Simon, uh, those that are out there again, like I said, first, when we started this, there's a lot of things that your company does behind the scenes that are transparent, that nobody'd know that you did it. So a lot of our imagery, plenty of the videos that we've got out there mm-hmm. and content like that, uh, has come from your company and, and some of the affiliations we have there. Um, but yeah, and then obviously... The yeah, we're, we're business happen- to business, really. Yeah, it's business to business. And, and so like and consumers, we never want the consumer to know our business name, Tweed Media. We would always put our client, in this case, Hornady, we are mm-hmm. always trying to promote, if we image credits, we're always giving the image credit to the client, not to, you know, we're not trying mm-hmm. to promote our business. It's about our client's getting the getting yeah. the you know the PR so, so this is this is truly behind the scenes yeah it? it really is well i appreciate <laughs> yeah, 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 the, yeah. we the lift the curtain up yeah, on, lift on, the, on, yeah yeah lift the, lift the british curtain up yeah 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 well we appreciate the the perspective and uh yeah neil simon thanks for coming on the show thanks, and, and again giving us that unique perspective that you know, here as Americans with our actually improved language, we don't necessarily get to see it oh from there's that not angle. there's not that much between us and you know the commonality is um whether it's me talking to Steve, Jason, you guys, whoever, like we all love hunting and that's a leveler. You can be in the bush with whoever, with guides that don't speak English. I'm sure when we're in Pakistan, hunting is a pretty universal language, you know, yep. and if you're, if you're really passionate about it, it doesn't matter where you are in whatever business, whatever walk of life, you can all connect. And I think that's one of the nicest things about this sector, this industry is that like you can connect with people at all walks of life, at all levels of success and seniority in the industry. If you're truly passionate about hunting i think that's like the first step in creating some good relationships yep. so level the playing field yeah, totally well, the animal doesn't care who you are they're going <laughs> to treat you exactly the same yeah that's true so, yeah fair enough guys thanks for coming on the show everybody out there hopefully you enjoyed this perspective from simon's point of view appreciate you listening in and we'll catch you on the next one